uh, as we're marching along in Luke, it's kind of becoming obvious what, what Luke is up to, isn't it? And again, you see that these stories not necessarily blow by blow like Luke's point wasn't. And this is really important. This is one of those stories where we get to, to exercise the, the skill of reading our Bibles with some intelligence, reading our Bibles the way they're supposed to be read. We look at, at, at how Luke is laying out his argument and go, I don't know if Luke is trying to give us exactly the dates and the people and like, a, like somebody who is just writing a, a, a newspaper article about the event. I think Luke is trying to say something here. I think he has organized these stories. I think he is making an attempt to tell us something very important about his experience with God Almighty in flesh. And, and as we read this story and along with the stories we've read, it's pretty, it becomes more and more evident that Luke is making a case for the deity of Christ and the humanity of Christ. He is making a case that there is no logical, like there is no good reason to do anything except acknowledge Jesus as God and to give your life for him and follow him. That he claimed to be God. That everywhere he went, the proclamation of his deity was, was on everybody's lips. Today we even hear that the proclamation of the deity of Christ is on demons' lips. He is the new Adam. Jesus is the one who undoes the problem of all of humanity, who undoes the curse of Eden and invites us into the relationship with God that we were intended to have all along. We've heard the story that we're looking at today is our first interaction. We've, we've had interaction in the temptation of Christ out in the wilderness uh, with Satan, but this is our first interaction with demons. And some questions are going to come up and we'll ask them honestly and go, okay, exactly what's going on here? I want to prepare you. Uh, if you are looking for exactly what's going on here, all we have is the eyes of Luke to tell us what's going on. And so we'll affirm what we can know what's when we can know what's going on. And we'll say, huh, strange story. When we can't know what's going on, but we will arrive at a more profound point than just knowing every detail of what is going on. We'll get to that in a minute. So this is our first encounter with demons. I'm reminded of, I've probably, you know, paraphrased this a hundred times from this pulpit, but I'm always reminded of what C.S. Lewis said in the introduction of the screw tape letters, that the two problems you can have with demonic world is to make too much of them and not to make enough of them. It's not right to see demons around every mistake. Sometimes you were just dumb. Or other people were. Like, that's a possibility. That's in the range of uh, possible. We don't, we don't need demons for us to do bad things. We can do that all on our own. At the same time, Paul says that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the powers and principalities and forces of evil in the heavenly places. So we need to have a nuance, not... Uh, not um, we need to hold these things with an open hand and take each story in their merit and learn what Luke is saying right now. Is that fair? And the big idea that we will come away with today, and if you're a dad, happy Father's Day. If you need a nap, brother, now's the time. Just go ahead. See, the, there's a golf tournament on this afternoon. Beautiful sleeping. I hope you get it. I hope you get it. If you like golf, turn on the golf tournament and take a nap. If you don't like golf, even better. It is the best thing. Here we are on the 11th. <laughs> I think he has a four. I know it's a five. It's perfect. So I hope you get 
I hope you get that today. But if you need it now, go ahead. But wait till after the big idea. And the big idea is this, that Jesus is the one where unclean people come to him and they leave clean. Now, the details of exactly what's going on, let's have a cup of coffee and argue about it. I love it. And come at me. I'm, I'm ready. But let's not miss in the details. Let's not miss the big idea that Luke wants us to know that Jesus, the one who defeated, did what Adam could not do in the wilderness in saying no to the temptation offered to him by the evil one, now is confronting evil in a community and is the one who hurt people, oppressed people, unclean people, leave his presence clean. Man, is Jesus good? This story is Luke's testimony. This is Luke telling us what he saw when he was there. And his report, his testimony, is that Jesus is the one with the authority and the power to make the unclean clean. So the story started with, with Jesus teaching with authority, and it'll end with Jesus serving everybody in healing them. And I'll make a big deal about this as we go, but that's because teaching and serving are the two sides of leadership. That Jesus shows us his power and his authority. And how, we would, how would we expect the man with ultimate power and ultimate authority to act? Would it be serving everyone? That's the truth about our Savior. And in the middle of all this, there's this great expression of his power, this exorcism, these healings, which are going to look an awful lot alike. And we'll talk about that as we get there. But Luke's point over and over is going to be the power and the authority resident in Jesus and the love in the action of Jesus. So here in 30 minutes or so, I'm going to say, here's the application for today. You have to decide, and nobody else can decide this for you, and it's not about winning an argument over coffee, and it's not about figuring out what the perfect version of faith is, and it's not about figuring out the perfect you know, denomination or ideology or, or Bible translation or anything else. It's simply about this. You need to decide. Everybody has to decide. In fact, even if you didn't decide on purpose, you have passively decided and need to think about this. What who is the ultimate power and authority in the universe? And then you go need, need to go live your life accordingly. So that's where we'll get at the end of our story. So it starts, and he went down to Capernaum in the city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. Well, there's some fun things. He's back in Capernaum. You remember last week as he was in Nazareth and did not get along with his hometown, and they tried to kill him. They, there was mention in there that he had done miracles in Capernaum. So it looks like he has come back to Capernaum, a city in Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. I love that, you know, I don't know how many Sabbaths ago that last story was, or even if these stories are out of order, but, but even as Jesus goes and gives the message of the good news, um, and they want to murder him for it, you know what he does uh, every Sabbath is he goes and tells people the good news. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. The thing that separates Jesus' teaching. Do you think there was some teaching there in that synagogue regularly? Something tells me. They had local leaders. 
and there were traveling rabbis, and there were traveling members of the Sanhedrin, and there, were no, there was no shortage of loving to argue, loving to dig in, loving to teach from the Torah, to dig into what we call our Old Testament, and to say, what is God like? But it was all derivative teaching. And that's what's happening right now. I do not teach as somebody with authority. In fact, I think sometimes we get that a little mixed up. We have God uses a teacher in our lives. God uses a pastor, a friend, an evangelist. God uses somebody and we think, oh, that woman is powerful. That man really has authority in his teaching. No, there's only one ultimate source of authority. It's all derivative. We are doing what they were doing week in and week out, and that is digging into the scriptures, saying, God, would you enlighten these scriptures from us? We want to hear from you. I pray every time before I get here, God, I don't want these people to hear from me. May the words of my mouth and the, the meditations of my mind, may they be beneficial to people. But God, I want, I want you to speak. Amen? Nobody came here to listen to Grant. We came here to listen to what the Holy Spirit has to say. And Jesus didn't teach like that. Jesus taught with first-hand authority. His word possessed authority. And one of the big questions in the New Testament, there is a struggle for power in the New Testament. And there is a struggle for power in each of our lives. And one of the big questions in the New Testament and in life in general is this, what or who is the nexus of authority? Where is the source of power that is, and, and that is what is meant by authority. As Luke says, he doesn't just teach well. What Luke is saying is clearly not, this guy was really talented with words. He's not saying that Jesus, man, he can really, you should see all four of his points started with the letter T. It was amazing. There was a poem and a hymn at the end that tied the whole thing together. That's not what's happening here. Rather, the testimony of Luke is that Jesus is the one who taught like he wrote it, who taught with first-hand authority. Who is it that can speak and command in their own name? You know, there, this was a culture that was very mindful of the spiritual realm popping up in the physical realm. There were exorcists wandering around and, and doing their thing and, and coming in and saying, do you have anybody possessed? And again, we could argue about how much of this is actually physical illness that was perceived as spiritual illness, how much of this is, uh, is spiritual illness. We might wrestle with how much of what we perceive as physical illness is actually spiritual illness, but that's a sermon for a whole other day. Um, but but we, could, we could spend our time arguing over that, or we could just realize, look, exorcists would come to town and they would cast out demons or they would do their thing in somebody's name, in God's name, in the name of a teacher, in the name of another spirit. This is why um, one of the accusations against Jesus is, oh, he casts out by the name of Beelzebub. No, Jesus commands demons with first-hand authority, not appealing to anyone else. Look, you don't just get to say Jesus was a good teacher, Jesus was a good guy, Jesus was really wise, Jesus was really smart. No, Jesus was God, or at least he acted like it. 
You need to decide in your life, are you living so you look good in other people's eyes? Are you living so your, your, your family approves? Are you living so you know, your boss is happy? Are you living so you get the most stuff? Are you living so you can be in the place you want? Are you living so that you will be satisfied? Are you understanding Jesus is the authority and I better live under his authority? I better live for him. Who can speak? and command in their own name. Free to choose or act without any restraint other than his own nature. Well, that was a source of great discussion. Is it Rome? They can make us do whatever they want us to with the tip of a sword. Is it Jerusalem? Is it the priesthood that are the holders of our religious tradition? Is it the rabbis that are doing the work of building fences around the Torah and, and, and telling us how best to, to live life according to what God has written? What's the nexus of authority? Is it us? For us? Is it, is it the culture? Do we live in a way where we get the most likes or, you know, whatever. I don't even know. I've been off social media a couple of years. I can't remember how it works. What do you get, little hearts or something? Do we live in a such a way that our subculture approves? Now, this is something that I had a hard time getting over. I'm a punk rocker. Notice I say that in the present tense. Deep in my heart, there is punk rock right here. And it is tempting. Do you remember being young and going, I don't just want to live... Like, I want to live like my subculture approves. I want to live like my team, like my tribe, like the people I admire most, like they approve. That's the nexus of authority. That's who I really want to make happy. That's something that probably we've all had to get over in one time or another. Is it a denomination? Is it a local church? Who is it that is the nexus of authority? Is it tradition? Probably I would say the most common answer to this, whether in word or definitely in deed, is that I am the nexus of authority. That I do what I think is right. And you hear people say, what's a good life? Man, be true to yourself. Just if you can, if you can like sleep at the end of the day, you look yourself in the mirror, do right by you. Everybody do right by you. And that's, that's how we're supposed to live, right? Isn't that the best version of life that we've been offered? You know, the Old Testament has a word for this. When something is the ultimate authority in your life that is not Yahweh, that is not God. Do you know that word? It's idolatry. It is making ultimate that which is not the ultimate in the universe. And I want us to pretend that we're hearing this stuff fresh for the first time. I know we're Christians in here. You showed up to church on Father's Day. You are a believer. That's how that, like that, that's how that works. There's a reason they didn't put Father's Day in the middle of football season. We'd have trouble. Um, but uh, so I know, I know, I know most of you are believers. But I want you to hear this like it's fresh. Say, look, you have to decide, not just because it's your tradition to follow Jesus, but is Jesus the ultimate authority in the universe? Because if he is not, don't follow him. But if he is, don't follow anyone else. Don't live for anyone else. We would probably go through that list. We would say, okay, Rome, Jerusalem, the rabbis, 
our culture, modern-day culture, our subculture, modern-day government, a denomination in a church, a local church, um, tradition, whatever family traditions or, or local traditions we have, me as an individual, are any of those things the nexus of authority? And we would all think about it and go, actually, all of those people, all of those entities are going to stand before judgment of God. They are all subsidiaries of authority. I think Luke wants, not, wants us not to be idolaters. I think Luke doesn't want us to look at this story about Jesus casting out demons and say, oh, can Jesus teach me how to cast out demons? I think Luke wants us to see the story of Luke, of Jesus casting out demons and saying, and for us to fall at his feet and say, my Lord and my God. For each of us, our choice is real. We have freedom. We are volitional. But there is a moral, an ethical, and a physical reality to which choice we make, who we are living for, what we see as the ultimate authority. Maybe we would say it like this, we are free to jump off a cliff, we are not free to fly. You are free to follow your heart. You are free to follow whomever you'd like. We're free to sin, we're free to live life for ourselves. We are not free to avoid the reality that there is only one God and we will stand before him. And by definition, whomever is the judge, the standard by whom all others will be judged is the authority. That is God by definition. And Luke, as he says, these people marveled because he spoke as one with authority is not. He was the best rabbi they had ever heard, but rather he speaks as God. And Luke will go to great lengths to prove in category after category that Jesus is that authority. And, you know, a couple of questions come up. I always want to be honest. I always want to say, look, if we were reading this the first time, if this wasn't so familiar, if we hadn't seen this story on the flannel graph as children, um, what would be the questions that come up as we say, Jesus is God. Jesus is the ultimate authority. Question number one might be, well, then what is he like? Because it is possible for Jesus to be God, but not good. We'd have to say, just the proclamation that Jesus is the authority doesn't tell us anything about his character. I guess it would be like, you know, philosophically possible for Jesus to be the power, but before I follow him, I want to know what's he like. So Luke wants to tell us stories to show us not only the power of Jesus, but the personality of Jesus. What is he like? Because how we respond to the authority of Jesus probably has a lot to do with what he's like, how he uses that authority. And one of the things that Luke wants us to, wants to invite us into is not just, hey, follow Jesus because he's powerful, but he wants to say, follow Jesus because the ultimate power in the universe is love. Serves by, the, by, the, by, the by his very nature. And the second question that might come up is, well, so does that mean if Jesus is the cause of every does that mean Jesus is the cause of everything if he is the ultimate authority? And I want to I think through that real quickly with you. Let's think about it. Does authority override will? I'll give you five minutes to write a 150-word <laughs> response. Does authority override will? In the proclamation that is 
orthodox Christian thinking, that Jesus is the ultimate authority in the universe, does that give us the right to say, then when things aren't good, I shake my fist at Jesus? Does authority override the volition of each of us? Well, I'm sure that you have been under someone's authority. I'm sure you know what it's like to be under authority and not have your will line up with the authority that you were under. Did you hear me say I'm a punk? That is our definition. That's our credo is you can't make me do it, right? Like, that's what we love. We're sticking it to the man every place we go. That's, that's all we like. I was, I was a punk in every sense you could, <laughs> you could mean that. Of course, the consequences of our will is never undone. The volition of our will, our ability to make choices is never undone. When we say Jesus is the authority, we do not mean he is the one who is the cause of every action. What we mean is every action will be matched up against him as the standard. Do you see the difference? If you're looking for a definition of sovereign, I would commend that to you. Not that God is the one who does every action, but that it is every action will come under the scrutiny of God. Your will is yours. So Luke's invitation is, would you see the power of Jesus? Would you see the authority of Jesus? And instead of saying, I have will, I have volition, I can make my own choices, that makes me God. Would you look at Jesus and say, he is the one who teaches with authority. He is the one who casts out demons. He is the one who heals. He is the authority. I would do well to submit my will to his. Not just because he has the authority, but because he is love. He is good, and that is the best life. Verse 33, and in the synagogue there was a man who, uh, who had a spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him known harm. Unclean is an interesting way to describe a demon. If you were writing a novel and were like, how do I describe this demon? What are some adjectives that you might use? Like terrifying, like ugly, evil. Or maybe you just go, I feel like demon kind of implies that it wasn't a good guy. So why does Luke, this careful storyteller, Use this word, unclean. You know, some commenters, I always love it when you read the commentaries and they're kind of all over the map on something. Um, and this is one of those. Some, some commentators say, well, it's a double description for emphasis. It's like he was a really bad demon. Some would say, actually, in ancient Greece, um, the word demon was not necessarily good or bad. You know, the, like you could have, uh, it was just a spiritual entity that, that guided you or whatever. So it's important to say that this, is a, that this is a bad one, an unclean demon. I sure am convicted, though, that the point Luke is trying to make is not that this man's life was like hard or there was a poltergeist, no horror movie kind of stuff. Rather, Luke's point is that this man's state made him unworthy for intimacy with God. He was unclean. We don't live in a culture that cares all that much about clean and unclean spiritually. 
But this was a culture that that's all they cared about. This was the thing. How could I be clean, presentable before God? And this man sits here more than like tormented, and that'll be other places. Luke will tell stories like that. But more than, um, you know, like his head spinning around and stuff's coming out his ears. That's not what Luke, Luke wants to say. No, the problem in this guy's life is that he was unclean. And that this demon was the problem. This man was obviously suffering, and Jesus ended this particular case of suffering. That is profound, but Luke's point is not that Jesus is the one that makes the uncomfortable comfortable, but that he is the one who makes the unclean clean. Are, are you listening? Do you know? The point is not that if your life is sad, Jesus will make your life happy. The point is not that if you are hurting, Jesus will always make you not hurting. The point is that you can be clean before God by the power of Jesus. Who? And it's probably a good time to do a little thinking about evil, which is, you know, that which is opposed to God. While Luke's point is certainly not to give us a full course in demonology or or the nature of evil, there are a few things can be observed. And this is one particular case. I think it's probably flawed theology to take one particular case like this and say, oh, now we know everything there is to know about any category. So let's not do that. Let's just take this case for what it is. But let's make some observations like the reality of evil and the patience. Do we think that this same kind of evil is no longer a problem in our culture? Or would we say maybe that evil knows how to work in a particular culture? That our battle still is not against flesh and blood, but against the powers and principalities and spiritual forces of evil. And while we feel evolved and while we feel like we wouldn't, you know, downstream of enlightenment thinking, we might say, oh, come on, it's just silly to talk about demons having an impact on the world. But maybe we would go, demons have been paying attention. We still need to worship the God who makes the unclean clean. Because while we might shudder, we might think, I don't know if I really buy this as I, as I say there's still demonic activity in the world. If I were to say, oh, there's still great uncleanliness in the world, you'd probably go, yeah, that's right. We still live in a world where unclean people need to be presented to Jesus. We could talk about the power of evil, that, that it is just true that the spiritual impacts the physical. In fact, we would believe our Bibles that all of creation came out of spirit, that spirit precedes material. And this man is proof. Interesting that Luke throws both of these lines right next to each other, that the demon threw him down and yet had not harmed him. So we see evil's effects and Jesus' protection side by side. We could see the arrogance of evil. And you know, this is how I think we, we recognize evil when we see it. The demon recognizes Jesus. Of all the people in the room, the demon is the one who is clearest about who Jesus is. And yet instead of going, oh, Jesus, I'm so sorry. What could we do? We'll get right out of here. The demon looks at Jesus and goes, what do we have to do with you? And while we're not super comfortable using words like demon and evil in our culture, we have an awful lot of, Jesus, what do we have to do with you in our culture? 
We have a culture that needs to meet this Jesus. The Jesus who makes the unclean clean. My favorite thing to notice about evil in this, in this uh, passage is the fear of evil in the presence of Jesus. And you know, I think one of the most important things you could take away if we, of, of, of any discussion of demonology, any discussion of evil is, look, the fight between God and Satan, the fight here in this synagogue or wherever they were between uh, Jesus and this demon is not a fair fight. We have this like idea that like there's a cosmic battle between good and evil. No, there has been a cosmic victory over evil. Jesus is not barely winning. And they were all amazed and said to one another, what word is this? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. So this is Luke's proof number one. Do you see the logical argument that Luke is saying? Luke has said, everybody's amazed because he speaks with authority. He speaks like he's God. And then Luke is going to tell several stories to prove it. Proof number one, the authority of Jesus is evident in his power over demons. The demons recognize him and they obey his direct command. That is interesting. They are completely opposed to God. They are rebellious to the core. And yet like a toddler being dragged to their room for a timeout, they go exactly where Jesus tells them to go. In fact, I would, I would put that image in your mind. We are talking about wills that are directly opposed to each other if we're talking about God and the demonic. We are not talking about powers that are equal. Have you ever raised a toddler? There are times where we are very grateful. I always say, like, I, I don't know if you can tell this by looking at me, but I'm not fast. Um, and I was just so grateful that my kids were born with short legs. You know, like I still had closing speed when they were two, like they bolt off down the cul-de-sac, I was going to get them. We had wills that were directly opposed. We did, we did not have power that was the same. So while they could look at me and go, you're a terrible dad and we hate you and we're not doing what you say, they're going to their room one way or another. <laughs> Do you see the importance? Haven't you looked at that toddler and go, if you'll just align your will to mine, you'll live a better life. Maybe that's a good picture too. Let's think about the reality of evil, but let's think about the greatness of God. Let's think about the, the, the truth that in Jesus, we have met the one that makes us stop fearing evil, but rather that us, those of us who are unclean can be clean. Again, in commanding the spirits, Jesus didn't appeal to any other power. What is this word, Luke writes? And you know, this word, that logos, is, is not just a reference to Jesus' teaching, but it's a reference to his teaching and his actions together. Logos is both word and action. That's important for us to know about Jesus. He, he demonstrated who he was through words and through actions. Are you with me? That we look at what Jesus said and we see that he is God, and we see that he is the Savior. But we look at what Jesus did, and we see the same thing. That's important for us to know about us as we follow Jesus, too. That what we say is important, but it must be matched with how we live. 
Have you professed that God is love? Well, then you better remove all hate from your heart. Have you professed that God is the, the one who serves us through sacrifice? Well, then you better be the one who serves through sacrifice. What do you care about? You could tell not only about Jesus' power, but you could tell about his heart by the way he lived, by the way he served. That should be true of his family as well. Because we also are not in a fair fight. You and I, we don't fear. Our battle is not against flesh and blood, and that's a good thing because there's a lot of flesh and blood that would overwhelm me. But the spiritual reality is in Christ, I have nothing to fear. So Luke tells a story about Jesus going into a place, a synagogue, on a church day, where there's a man who has an unclean demon. Can you imagine what a mess that was? Can you imagine if somebody came in ranting and raving? I've been leading worship when it happened. I haven't been preaching when it happened yet. But it'll happen someday here, right? And what are we going to do? We're going to say, let us introduce you to the one who makes the unclean clean. And then there's this parallel story. Just look real quick. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf and stood over here, her and rebuked the fever, and it left her, and immediately she rose and began to serve them. Do you see the parallels in the story? Jesus enters, there's a problem. Jesus, again, uses the same kind of language. In fact, notice that word rebuke. Same exact word in Greek, same, same, same. He rebukes the demon, it leaves. He rebukes the fever, it leaves. Again, there's a, uh, some different opinions on why this is. Some people have said, well, that's because this fever was demonic. It was because this, what Luke is saying is that this fever was the cause of a demon. I think that's missing the point entirely. I think the point is Jesus has the same kind of command over every aspect of life. Jesus is the God who can command anything. He is the source. He is the nexus of authority. He exercises absolute control. So some might take it too far and say that this illness is demonic in nature. I would just say Jesus has ultimate power over physical bodies, just like he does over spiritual entities. Now in the sun setting, and all those who uh, had any who were sick with with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And the demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. If this story was brand new to you, what would you expect to Jesus to do at the end of this day? I don't know about you, but if during church I cast out a demon and then got invited to one of the leader's houses for lunch and cast out an illness, that'd be about it for the day. I'd feel like that was a pretty... I'd be looking for high fives and a good place to sit down. We're talking iced tea. Not gonna lie, spaghetti would be great at the end of that. I'd be emotionally drained. And in his humanity, we have no reason to think that Jesus wasn't tired at the end of this day. In fact, I think that there are some clues that that would tell us Jesus was tired 
And now that the sun was setting, Luke can write. Are you with me? This is beautiful writing. You get this image. What does the sun setting mean if you're a good Jewish person? Well, that's the end of the day, the beginning of the new day. The sun goes down, that's tomorrow. So we see Jesus has power on the Sabbath and off it, but we also see Jesus not being the one who goes, look, that was Sunday. It was Saturday, but you're with me, right? That was, I, no, 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 I, I, I work and serve on this day, but this is my day off. We're going to talk about Jesus taking Sabbath rest next week, so keep these things in tension. But Jesus is the one who says, I already healed this guy in the morning. I already healed Simon's mother-in-law. She's been going around serving us ever since. But you know what I'm going to spend well into tomorrow doing? Is serving this crowd. What would you expect? You know, not only needing a rest, but I wonder if you would expect for Jesus after, after casting out a demon, after healing Peter's mother-in-law, for him to, to take a throne. If we had people, in fact, <laughs> in fact, we do have people who claim to do big spiritual things and want glory, want to take a throne, want to, to sit on something gold. But we see Jesus' nature. We see not only his power, but we see his personality. We see not only what his authority is like, we see what his heart is like. And he spends the rest of the day. I love Luke just kind of being in awe. How would you write this? Luke just says, even when the sun went down, he healed all who had, who had any who were sick with various diseases. And he laid hands on every one of them. Do you see just the totality of Jesus' love? The one with ultimate authority is the same one staying up late to heal, staying up late to free, staying up late to serve. Luke details one man being freed from a demon and one woman being healed. But then he says these were not one-off kind of flukes. This, was, this is something that was overwhelming. We'd never seen anything like it. This was no coincidence. There were tons of stories that day just like that. And we learn something about God as we watch Jesus cast out demons. And we learn something about God as we watch him minister to hurting people after hurting people after hurting people. In church, we need to proclaim the power of God, but we need to, re to reflect his service for the hurting as well. Yeah? That if this is our God, if this is the one we follow, then we have to understand that our authority is derivative. It comes from him. But our service is a reflection of him as well. And so we can't be those who serve with broken-hearted, compassionate ministries without proclaiming the greatness and authority of Jesus. And we can't be those who proclaim the greatness and authority of Jesus without being those who reflect that greatness and authority and love and compassionate ministries. Well, let's apply this in three quick ways. First, Jesus' authority is something we recognize, not manipulate. It's been one of the frustrations of my life that people hear stories like this and go, well, then I want to cast out demons like Jesus. How do I get this magic power? I hope that if we were in the room when Jesus was 
casting out demons. We wouldn't go, hey, could you teach me that? Instead, we would just fall on our face. We would just acknowledge him. This story is not about our ability. This story is about Jesus' ability. I think demons can still get cast out. I'm not one who would put limits on what God can do in the modern day. I'm just one who would put limits on our ability to boss Jesus around. I would say we see this and we submit to him. We worship him. We get used by him in ways that amaze us. But it's always him working it. So I would encourage us, instead of asking, if Jesus is so powerful, why is there still suffering in the world? Aren't you tempted to that? Oh, if Jesus is so powerful, why doesn't he do what he did in that little town in Capernaum? Why doesn't he do it in Seaside? Why doesn't he do it all over the world? Why is there still demonic oppression? Why is there still illness? Why? There's answers for that. And it has a lot to do with what we talked about before, that his power and authority does not overrule. It is an invitation to submit our will to his for now, this side of his second coming, our volition, our rebellion still has a lot to do with the way the world is. But instead of just asking ourselves, if Jesus is so powerful, why is there suffering in the world, that you would simply die to yourself and follow him. Just fall down. In fact, Luke will tell a story several chapters later. Luke will tell a story of giving his disciples this ability to do things like this. He'll send them out to, to do both these things, to teach and to cast out demons. But even in that story, it isn't the disciples who decide to have that power, but Jesus who decides to give it. The focus is always this, that Jesus is God. So we should submit to him and live like it. Who's the nexus of authority in your life? In your heart, in your ideology? Are you demanding that God line his will up to yours? Or are you falling at his feet and lining up your will to his? Second application point is this. Jesus' Jesus' authority over demons and illness was intended to reveal a deeper spiritual reality. We talked about this a little bit last week, and we'll continue talking about this in this section in Luke. But, But all of these folks got ill again. We kind of forget that. It would be another thing if we were like, that day in Capernaum, dozens of people got healed, and here they are to tell you the story. But no, they all got ill with something else at some other time and died. Jesus did not show up that day to solve temporary problems, but rather to solve temporary problems to illustrate that he is the Savior who solves the ultimate problem. He is the one who makes the unclean clean. So the question isn't, why isn't Jesus fixing this problem in my life? The question is, has God, and just if you haven't been paying attention for a while, I understand, but come back with me now. The question isn't, why isn't Jesus fixing this problem in my life? The question is, has God demonstrated his greatness and love to you? And that's something only you can answer for you. But as you read the scriptures, as you spend time meditating on him, as you hear the story, 
Start with the empty tomb. Always start with the empty tomb and move back. Have you been convinced that Jesus rose from the dead? Has God convinced you of his power? Then live for him. If he hasn't, then keep searching. But if he has, then follow him. Trust him. You know, probably the people that you follow in your life, the people that you trust most in your life, it has been because they've proven their trustworthiness. It has been because over and over you've looked at them and said, oh, I can trust this man or woman with my heart, with my time, with my kids, with my money, whatever it might be. But what about your soul? Has God demonstrated his love, his power in such a way that you cannot but fall at his feet and follow him. Man, lastly, I told you we would end here. Don't let yourself off the hook. Right now, in your heart, would you decide who is the power in the universe? Would you decide The claim is severe and the claim is obnoxious if it is not true. The Gospels don't tell us about a wandering rabbi who did some amazing things in the name of God. God, The the Gospels tell us about God become man who demonstrated his deity, especially in raising from the dead and being the savior of the world in making the unclean clean. Are you racked with the burden of your unclean heart? Do you sense uncleanliness in you? Would you like to know the one who makes clean hearts and fresh starts? If you were going to look at your life, who is it that you serve? Who do you act like is the ultimate authority? Is it the culture? Is it church? people? Is it your own heart? Or is your calendar, your heart, your life, everything about you lined up with this one truth that Jesus is God and that the best life is one in submission to him?